You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Our November uh, jobs report is coming out. 210 thousand on non-farm payrolls a huge miss 235,000 on private payrolls and if we look at what's going on with regard to the change in manufacturing 31,000 that's also a bit of a miss look at the jobs and how it is here September and October were both revised higher remember but then this disappointment in November and I look through these numbers John and I see a lot of customer facing jobs had very little job growth, if at all. So customer-facing jobs, that could be that it's not the job problem, it's the worker problem. Workers aren't going back to those customer-facing jobs. Jobs number just crossed. 210 jobs just added. So 210,000. So if we look at that breaking news right now, that's a number that feels a little, what, a little off? Well, I, I know this sounds a little archaic, but I can't comment on them until 930 uh, okay. by, by rules because I work okay. at the White House. <laughs> yeah, but I will say uh, what people can expect the president to continue to say today, month to month, mm-hmm. is that what we're seeing are good trends that we are continuing to put people back to work, that we are continuing to see uh, participation in the workforce, that we are continuing to see the unemployment rate go down. But there's more we need to do to address core problems that have existed long before the pandemic. Because, Adrian, there's the supply chain. There's this number, um, which she can't comment on for an hour, so we'll keep her here. <laughs> it's it's um, a little crazy. We're not leaving. Here uh, we are. And, and, uh, and a lot of other issues that you brought up earlier. How can the White House and how can the Democrats own the economy? It feels like... It feels like well, more can be done. And I don't think it's just the White House's responsibility. I think it's frustrating as, as a Democratic strategist that, that the economy is doing so well. I mean, we have a lot of great things to talk about, right? Right, Especially the record unemployment rate, especially over the last several years. Um, you know, the fact that we are feeling like we're constantly on the defense in the economy. Um, Jen, can you talk a little bit about more, like, you know, I mean, you, you know, as a former Democratic strategist before you became the White House press secretary, like, what more can Democrats be doing, not just the White House, but what more can we be doing to affect this message overall, to talk about, you know, how strong the economy is, even though, you know, some people feel that, you know, it's not as strong as it really is. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I've always believed, but certainly have learned a lot from the president on, is that people do not vote on, respond to data. Um, that's not how people experience things in their lives. Like, what does economic data mean to them? What what they care about and what Democrats, that's why I love being a Democrat. There's a lot of wonky nerds in the Democratic <laughs> Party, but we need to make it real for people. What does this mean for child care and what the cost of child care is going to be? What does it mean for whether they can go back to work or not? How can they get health care for their parent? How are they going to pay for their parent to get the elder care they need? So we need to really think carefully about not getting too wonkified and making sure we're talking about things in a way that is accessible, that is how people, it impacts people's lives. All right, you got to go. Yes or no, will Build Back Better be signed by the end of the year? Yes, I'm an optimist, Mika, uh, okay. but yes. And a self-proclaimed <laughs> wonky nerd. Yeah. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, thank you very thank much you. for dropping by. And we're back. This is the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Not CNBC, not CNN, not MSNBC. Aren't you glad for that? I am, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. Today is Saturday, December 4th, 2021. This is episode 269 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. And I just played for you three clips, one from CNBC, one from CNN, one from MSNBC, regarding the jobs report for November. It was only 200,000-some odd jobs, 235,000 jobs added to the economy. Some estimates before the report came out said 725,000. Some were saying 535,000. 200,000 jobs is a lot less than 500,000 or 700,000. Now I'll add, before I criticize too much, According to notthebee.com, according to CNBC, not the bee quotes CNBC, 
as saying that non-farm payrolls increased by just 210,000 for the month, though the unemployment rate fell sharply to 4.2% from 4.6%, so that's a 0.4% drop in the unemployment rate. Labor force participation rate, meanwhile, increased for the month to 61.8%, the highest level since March of 2020. That is possibly what Jen Psaki is referring to as far as trends looking upward. All the same, when analysts are expecting 500,000 or 700,000 jobs and only 200,000 are added, it does bear asking, why would that be? Why 500,000 or 300,000 fewer jobs added in November compared to what analysts were expecting? And I think Jen Psaki commenting about wonkified analysts in the Democrat Party, nerds who are not in touch with the American people who really want to just understand how this is going to affect them, right? Don't show me data. Tell me how this is going to affect my family. I think to Jen Psaki's point, the jobs report is really kind of moot because at the end of the day, are we optimistic or are we pessimistic? She's optimistic that Build Back Better is going to be signed by the end of the year. But are we optimistic that our country is actually being built back? Are we actually being built back better? Or do you have to put that kind of a spin on your program in order to hide the fact that you are tinkering with things and it's not working out so well. It's not having the results that you said it was going to. Raise taxes, spend money in such a way as to cause inflation, which is the worst in my lifetime, in our lifetime, uh, most of us, cause inflation. Meanwhile, job growth is anemic. Meanwhile, you still have only 61.8% labor force participation. And why is that? As the clip from CNN pointed out, you have not much growth in the way of customer-facing jobs. Why is that? I would hazard a guess. This is just a little bit of speculation. But I would hazard a guess that the customer-facing jobs are more strict about requiring employees to wear masks and be vaccinated. They're the ones who were first in line to say, no, we're going to be really strict about this. Even here in Greeley, Colorado, Weld County, Colorado, which has not been big on the mask mandate, the vaccine mandate business, when I go into King Supers, when I go into Walmart, I'm still hearing over the loudspeakers that all their employees are required to wear masks per the CDC. Even if they're vaccinated, they want customers to wear masks. Now, they're not forcing it. They're not going to call the cops on you. They know better than that. Greeley PD, Weld County Sheriff's Department are not going to come and arrest you in Greeley, Colorado if you are not wearing a mask in King Supers or Walmart. So most people just flat aren't anymore. It's maybe two or three out of 10 who still are wearing masks. But most of the employees are. And that's a customer-facing job. And so if people have a choice to go and get a job somewhere else, where they're not going to be forced into wearing a mask, where they're not going to be forced into getting the vaccination that uh, is not really a vaccine in the traditional sense. It's more gene therapy, as Will Witt said on their recent episode, Will and Amala Live, which is a great show, by the way. If you haven't ever heard of it, check it out over there at The Daily Wire or uh, at PragerU. But it's gene therapy. We are tinkering with things which Michael Crichton could write novels 
about, did write novels about. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. That, of course, is Jeff Goldblum's character in Jurassic Park, Malcolm. Malcolm is right on. You could just take what he's saying there and transpose it onto our current situation with the COVID vaccine. When you're messing with people's RNA and they aren't so sure that they want you to, maybe they're not going to want to work for you if you're forcing the issue, if you're saying you can't be employed by us unless you get this vaccine. But Jen Psaki's right. Jen Psaki is right when she says that most voters, most people are not driven by data. They're not driven by numbers. The numbers have to indicate something tangible in their lived experience, something that they can relate to. Most people are not big into data and numbers and statistics, which is, as a side note, a large part of why I avoided as much as possible statistics and numbers in my book, and this is why we homeschool. I had some encouragement from a friend of mine who is very data-driven. He is very academic, and he's very smart, and he is very well-educated, but his advice was, you should have some more statistics in here. You should have some more numbers in here. People respond to numbers. Well, yes, maybe numbers get their attention, but at the end of the day, the rubber meets the road. People want to know, is this going to be good for me? Is this going to be good for my family? Is this going to be good for the people that I know and that I love and that I care about? Is this good for us? And the frank assessment in my neck of the woods is no, these things are not good because your assumptions are faulty because your presuppositions are off base. And also because your reasons for doing a lot of what you're doing are not what you say they are. We don't trust that you're being above board when you're trying to cram a whole lot of extra social engineering into your build back better. Your better here is not better in the sense of I'm going to be able to provide for my family in a more meaningful way, or we're going to get a bigger house for our growing family, or we're going to get our 2012 Ford Econoline E350 traded in for a 2021 Ford Transit. You, you don't mean better in that sense. You mean better in the sense that you're going to save the planet from climate change. You mean better in the sense that you're going to indoctrinate children to believe that gender is a social construct. You mean you're going to build back better in the sense that you're going to redistribute everybody's wealth along socialist and communist, ultimately, lines. That's what you mean by better. But the trouble is, on our way to <clears throat> your end goal, things are actually getting worse in very tangible ways. And you don't have the time and you don't have our patience to get where you're going. I, at least I hope. I hope and I pray that the good Lord does not bless your efforts and prosper the work of your hands in our lifetimes. I hope that there is a justice, which is divine, that intervenes on our behalf. But enough about that for a moment. Let's switch gears. And I want to talk a bit more about getting away from the Democrat party in a different direction. There is a Asian American gentleman by the name of Andrew Yang, who has put out an idea and his idea is basically let's give up on the Republican party. Let's give up on the Democrat party. Let's try and break out of this two-party system. It really shouldn't just be two parties. There really should be more viable options. Other countries have more viable options. And I'd like to play for you the full clip of Andrew Yang talking about this and then do a little bit of 
commentary on it. Take a listen. Hey everyone, I know you heard about Andrew Yang and the Forward Party, and I'm here to tell you actually what it is. It's probably not what you've heard. What we're gonna do is actually solve the problems that are literally driving us crazy. What am I talking about? Right now, we have this two-sided duopoly that's just clashing and clashing, and you may love one side more than the other, but you have to face facts that this system is not working. Unfortunately, the polarization is reaching record highs to a point where people can't be in the same room as family members, we're seeing literal violence erupt, and it's going to get worse, not better. We're getting more and more polarized, in large part because the incentives of our political system, our media, and social media all are driving us against each other and making us feel like other Americans are our mortal enemies. 22% of Americans used to cross party lines when it came to national elections. That's down to 7% today. People aren't really appealing to the middle as much because that's not how you're going to win. You're going to win by appealing to the base. This has become a country where partisanship is the most acceptable, most commonplace form of prejudice. Now, people have been feeling these problems getting worse and worse over the last number of years to the point where now 57% of Americans say they want a third party. 60% say that both parties are out of touch. Right now, people who say they're independents essentially outnumber registered Democrats or Republicans two to one. Imagine if you were an entrepreneur and you arrived on a marketplace and there were two companies and more than 50% of people wanted a new alternative. Wouldn't you want to create that alternative? Now, why are we feeling this stuck? Again, Congress has a 28% national approval rating. What's the re-election rate for individual members of Congress? 92%. Think about that for a second. Three out of four Americans don't like what Congress is doing, but more than nine out of 10 are going to be set up to win re-election again and again. And the reason for that is we have structural incentives, and this is where the math comes in, where right now 83% of congressional districts are safely Democratic or safely Republican. So if you are a member of Congress, your big concern is not trying to win a general election. It's to win a primary and avoid getting challenged in the primary. You're not catering to the 51% of voters that you imagine you need. You're catering to the most extreme 10 to 20%, which is why we're pitted against each other, why you see politicians refusing to compromise, because they know if they do compromise, they're more likely to get challenged and lose their seat than if they stay on their party line uh, and nothing gets done. So if you put reasonable people into this system of incentives, they'll actually become more unreasonable over time. This probably reminds you of America's political system. So how are we going to make this happen? For real, I could give an inspirational speech, but we know that would do absolutely nothing. That's political speak. I'm a problem solver, and if you want to solve the problem, here's how we do it. The Ford Party has some very straightforward tenets. Number one, open primaries and ranked choice voting so that you actually can have political dynamism and different points of view. We change the primary system from the closed party primaries to open primaries and ranked choice voting. This would immediately make our political figures more rational because they'd have to cater to 51% of us rather than the most extreme 20% on either side. One state has already done this, Alaska, and there are 24 other states where you can do this with ballot initiatives. Universal basic income, human-centered economy, fact-based governance, modern and effective government systems that actually work, but also grace and tolerance. We're not out to demonize or villainize anyone. We love our fellow Americans. What we have a problem with is a system that's going to turn us against each other. What we're in the midst of right now is one of the worst nightmares of our founding fathers. They hated political parties. There's nothing in the Constitution about any political party. And the duopoly would be their worst nightmare come to life because what they would have seen is factions that just clash over and over again and are susceptible to bad leadership. If you look at democracies around the world, how many parties do they have? Five, seven, eight, 18. Then you'd have shifting coalitions. People would come together and need to get things done. And by the way, if one of the parties succumbed to bad leadership, you'd be like, well, we've got another 17. That's how you make a strong system that's actually responsive to the needs of our time. This duopoly is going to kill us. We can all tell. It's one of the reasons why so many people have checked out of politics. But what I'm asking is the people who are sick of it to come together and solve the problem with me, with us. That is the forward party. It's an inclusive movement. You can be a registered Democrat, Republican, Independent, Ford Democrats, welcome, Ford Republicans, welcome, Ford Independents, 
Let's get it done. And let's make it so that we can actually feel good about ourselves, our country, our family members, and our future. It's not going to fix itself. The system won't allow it. It's the system itself that needs to change, and we can change it together. Okay. So here we've got some numbers. We've got some maths uh, being thrown out there by Andrew Yang. He did run as a Democrat during the 2020 election for president. And we know that some of his ideas we're not going to agree with. Some of his ideas we can't agree with. But broadly speaking, when Andrew Yang is talking about breaking out of the two-party system, I agree with him. I agree with him. I think he's talking a lot of sense when it comes to the dysfunction of the moment. This is why I say I don't register as a Republican. I vote as a Republican, but I don't register as a Republican. I register as an independent because I'm not so sure that the Republican Party has longevity. I'm not so sure that they're headed in the right direction long term or even in the short term. I'm not sold on the establishment moderate types in the Republican Party. And very often it feels like whether you're talking about Republicans or you're talking about Democrats, the establishment political folks of both parties care first and foremost about staying in office. They care first and foremost about getting donations. They care first and foremost about maintaining their status quo personally. Just like Jen Psaki was saying that most people don't respond to numbers. They don't respond to statistics. They want to know how does this affect me? How does this affect my family? How does this affect my loved ones, the people I care about? The establishment folks of both parties who have made their entire careers, they got their education in political science, they've spent their entire lives, their entire working lives, investing in the premise of themselves being necessary in the way that they're necessary right now. They're asking the question of how does this affect them if they lose the election? How does it affect them if all of a sudden they're not in office anymore. What are they going to do? What's their plan B? Are they going to go back to a civilian sector job? Are they going to become a lobbyist? A lot of them become lobbyists. If they get out of office, they don't win their next election. They go and they work for some corporation, which is trying to talk with lawmakers and politicians and trying to sway public opinion. But do they go back to a customer-facing job that involves the public? Very often the answer is no, just simply no. And actually, if you want to go back to the Founding Fathers, Andrew Yang, again, he's got a point here. The Founding Fathers of this country had more of a Cincinnatus approach and a, a mindset. We don't want career politicians. We want farmers and tradespeople. We want folks who have had to run businesses making decisions for a time and then going back to what they were doing before and living under the laws that they're creating, living under the precedent that they have set, not getting entrenched to where decade after decade, it's the same folks and you go off of name brand recognition. Now, to be frank, and hopefully not overly cynical, I hear what Andrew Yang is proposing here as far as <clears throat> changing the way that we do elections and having ranked voting. So then you would say, hey, here's my first pick. And if that guy just gets crushed, here would be my second pick. And then all the results are tallied. And your first pick, maybe it was a Ted Cruz-type character. Your first pick, he doesn't have a shot. He's fifth place. But your second choice, there's a lot of people that are behind him. And he was a lot of other people's second choice. And he was a good chunk of people's first choice. He ends up being the winner. 
and you didn't go for the third or the fourth rate guy because he just happened to game the system best. The maths worked out for him, but nobody really, really loves that choice. What Andrew Yang is proposing here, I fear will not happen so long as the establishment types of both parties might stand to lose. The folks who are the gatekeepers in this scenario have a vested interest in the status quo remaining as it is. Period. So then, does this have legs? Is Andrew Yang going to get anywhere with it? I'm not so sure he is. And again, too, there are things that we have to disagree about, Andrew Yang uh, and I. Universal basic income, not a great idea. Not a great idea. You know, UBI is put forward as a necessary thing if automation destroys the majority of jobs in the coming years, the coming decades. We're going to have to pay people something so that they can live when robots are doing all our jobs. Say truck driving, for instance. Elon Musk is heavily invested in self-driving autonomous trucks, semi-trucks, being the future. And he thinks that within our lifetime, it's going to be a rarity that you have a vehicle, whether it's a car, whether it's a pickup, whether it's an SUV, whether it's the family van, whether it's a semi-truck that has a steering wheel. It's going to be a rarity for vehicles to be made with steering wheels because everything's going to be self-driving. Everything's going to be autonomous. He thinks that's the case. Now, I've talked about this with my dad quite a lot because my dad's a truck driver. My dad's driven truck for decades. And my dad, you know, he's 70 years old. He just turned 70. And right now there's a shortage of truck drivers. Right now there's maybe a lot of people who are thinking, well, shoot, if robots are going to be all the truck drivers in the future, why would I invest myself in a truck driving job? Why would I want that hassle? But right now there's lots of truck driving jobs. My dad's looking at it and he's thinking about it and he follows the news and he likes to comment on technology and culture and politics and all that, which is part of where I get it from. But my dad's comment on this is, well, you know, who knows? Like maybe they won't even have truck driving jobs here in a few years. And the thought occurred to me as I was talking about this with my dad, what happens if all of your truck fleet for a country is autonomous and being controlled by the cloud? You know, not necessarily Google Maps, but the equivalent of Google Maps in somebody's network. There's a server farm somewhere, big data center, and that data center, maybe, you know, there's some redundancy. And so this one over here is sharing the workload with that one over there. And if this one goes down, you don't have a, a whole nation of stranded semi-trucks just sitting on the side of the highway or smack dab in the middle of the road. But even so, what happens if some enemy country or some terrorist organization decides they want to mess with your infrastructure. World War III, for years, military strategists have been saying, military analysts have been warning, World War III is going to be asymmetrical. It's not going to be like World War I. It's not going to be like World War II. It's going to be maybe, you know, including all the features of those two wars in terms of armament and the conventional tactics, but it's also going to have an additional overlay which we haven't seen before. And that overlay, when you start talking about China versus the United States or some coalition built around China on the one hand and the United States on the other, you're going to have countries hacking each other's power grid and shutting it down. You're going to have countries hacking one another's transportation network and shutting it down. And if all of your trucks are being controlled via satellite, 
well then who's to say that Russia doesn't just throw something at that satellite and knock it out? Who's to say that our space force uh, isn't up there trying to pew-pew back and forth with the Ruskies and the Chicoms <laughs> to protect our satellites because without them, you don't have goods being delivered to your Walmart. You don't have goods being delivered to your King Supers, for instance. And so what I see is for our national security interest, we're going to have to have steering wheels in semi-trucks. And we're not going to want to have all of our eggs in the basket of self-driving autonomous vehicles, whether that's you know me driving to the field as an automation technician, whether that's you driving to pick up your kids from school, whether that's someone's family going to church on a Sunday morning, whether that is a truckload of oranges pulling up to the grocery store, whether that's the UPS driver delivering packages to your front door. You don't want all your eggs in the basket of something that can be hacked and shut down. Now, the initial response, the first response is going to be, hey, wait a second, there's encryption. There's security there. We're going to have 64-bit encryption or something crazy like that. Okay, great, wonderful. Now add quantum computing into the mix. Now add a level of technology which is able to break encryption, which is feasible, which is a potential. That is a potential in our lifetime that quantum computing is the next revolution in computing and that quantum computing is able to break encryption uh, like a twig. Uh, you, you get a bunch of twigs bundled together and quantum computing just picks them off one by one, snaps them, and now some foreign government, which is hostile to ours, is able to get in and decide, nope, that truckload of oranges is not getting to King Supers after all. Those packages you ordered from Amazon are not getting to your front door after all. Not today, because we're at war. Uh, now, you've got to have something else. You've got to have a backup. And so this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, obviously, but one of the things that I threw out there was, you know, I think it's probably going to be a good idea to have backup systems whereby maybe you have one guy driving the front truck with a steering wheel. Maybe if you don't have enough truck drivers in the future, you have one truck driver driving the front truck and he's got a localized controller on his truck. And then you've got some kind of shortwave communications between that lead truck and a couple of trailing uh, autonomous vehicles, which are controlled in a more modular, compartmentalized sort of a way. And so then you've got, say, Bluetooth connectivity or shortwave radios or something like that, which are transmitting signals, giving instructions, hey, follow this lead, and you two or three semis behind, it's almost like a train, right? You guys are going to follow the lead on this front one. But in any event, I mean, automation, it seems like it's a cure-all, seems like it's a panacea, seems like all of our jobs are going to be done by robots in the future. I'm not so sure about that. I work in automation. I work as an instrumentation and electronics uh, technician, have for five years. And one of the things you figure out very quickly about automation and instrumentation and this kind of thing is that the idea on the front end from an engineer's standpoint very often sounds a lot more feasible than it is when the rubber meets the road. Hey, we get these things connected and yes, they work until this quirky little thing happens. And then you've got to have people out there reconnecting, reconfiguring, replacing batteries, replacing faulty sensors. There's still jobs to be had in the future economy for people to do. Just like Willy Wonka's uh, Charlie and the Chocolate, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Just like uh, Charlie Bucket's dad who loses his job at the toothpaste factory and then he gets his job back by the end of the 
story, working on the robot, repairing the robots that are supposed to be doing his old job. Uh, that's that's more likely what's going to happen. But rather than UBI, rather than universal basic income, how about this? How about you bring manufacturing back to the United States? And how about instead of having everything done by robots, you have people working to develop these skills, working to develop the ability to work with technology. You want to spend money well, don't pay somebody something, you know, just to cover their bills indefinitely and have that be your plan. Pay to have people get the education that they need to be able to work with automation, to understand it, to be certified, to be able to install these things, service these things, put people to work. Don't pay them to stay home. You pay people to stay home, that becomes your plan, and all of a sudden you've got a whole bunch of problems which go with the territory of people being paid to do nothing. All of a sudden you have people losing self-respect, losing their dignity. So Andrew Yang, UBI, I, I don't agree with you there, but breaking up the whole two-party bipolar character of our political process I think you're onto something there. And even with the UBI thing, you know, is that a bridge too far to where we can't sit down and have a conversation? I don't think so. I think I could vote for and be affiliated with somebody who I disagree with on UBI. Uh, abortion, I can't. I can't agree with you. I can't compromise on that. Promoting transgender theory and the LGBTQ plus stuff, I, I can't agree with that. I can't affirm that. I can't go along with that. But what it takes is I don't think just being pragmatic and just saying, well, hey, we don't like Democrat versus Republican, red versus blue. We don't like that dynamic anymore. I think what it takes is understanding why we would vote one way or the other and having a big picture, having a transcendent standard of truth instead of getting more self-absorbed and more short-sighted and more pragmatic and just stopping there, we have to be more principled. When you look at the two party system, what makes it broken is that people join these two parties and that's all they are is the people at the top, the establishment types, are too pragmatic and they're not principled enough. So what we need are transcendent principles. We need to understand what is right and wrong. Not just at the end of the month, do I have enough to pay my bills? UBI, you throw that in there and people all of a sudden are thinking, ah, free money, cool. Do I get more free money from this forward party that Andrew Yang is launching? than I get with the Democrats. I mean, all the Democrats have to do to quash that is say, well, we'll, you know, whatever they're offering, we'll double it. Oh, there goes your forward party. So you're not appealing to people at a high enough level. And it's fine to point to other countries and say, well, these other countries, they have five, 10, 15, 20 political parties. You need more options than just two. It's not enough to do that. It's not enough to say that. What we need is a transcendent standard, and we have it. We have it. What we need is we need to come to Jesus. And a lot of folks will hear that, and they'll say, well, that's, you know, again, that's not very practical. That's not any more practical or pragmatic than what Andrew Yang is proposing. But it really does start with each of us individually coming to Jesus. You have a whole country of people who come to Jesus and that changes everything. That changes our culture. That changes the way that our families work. That changes marriages falling apart or not even beginning in the first place. That changes the problem of fatherlessness. 
that changes the problems that we have in education, that changes the problems that we have with the insane draconian COVID restrictions. You know, this Omicron variant crops up and all of a sudden everything is thrown into a tizzy again. You know what's needed there is people to stop being so afraid of dying that they stop living and that they stop one another from living. Some of these headlines out of Australia, some of the video clips that you see out of Australia. You know, I watched a short clip of some police in Australia carrying an Aboriginal elder like a sack of potatoes. There's like three Australian police officers just carrying this guy horizontally. You know, this guy's got his legs and these two guys have him by the arms and they are just pushing him into the back of a van because he's being arrested. He's going to be hauled off to someplace. He wasn't complying. He wasn't following the lockdown orders or whatever. He's supposed to stay inside of his house. And people are videotaping it. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, this is genocide. You can't do this. And these police officers, they're not responding. But other clips I've seen out of Australia and some of the European countries that maybe Andrew Yang thinks are the better for having so many more political parties, the police officers, when they do respond, respond with something like, we're just following orders. You know, what you need more than a better political system, what you need is a new heart. What you need is a new mind. What you need is God. You need Jesus. Y'all need Jesus. So often, I think we look at the Democrat, Republican, Independent, where am I going to work, who am I going to work for thing, and we think in strictly human terms. As Bob Dylan said in the famous song, you got to serve somebody. And what's needed is for us to grapple with that, yeah, you got to serve somebody. You're going to have to submit to somebody's authority in your life. You got to serve somebody. But if you're serving God first and foremost, if you're working as unto the Lord first and foremost, then when somebody tells you to do something that's wrong, that's evil, that's wicked, that's oppressive, you're able to actually fall back on something substantive and say, O King, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. All of a sudden, you have a rubric for testing truth claims, for testing morality claims. Hey, this is right and this is wrong. Is it? You've heard that it was said. Jesus starts a lot of his teachings that way. You've heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Jesus responds when the devil comes to tempt him in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. It is written. It is written. What does God say about this? And then whatever they do to you, God sees. God knows. God will bless those who acknowledge him in all their ways. That goes for individuals, that goes for families, that goes for marriages, that goes for the parents and children, that goes for communities, that goes for churches, that goes for businesses, that goes for cities and states and nations. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's what God says in Second Chronicles 7.14. Verse 13, he says, If I close the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send a plague among my people, and if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. That's the problem here. It isn't just that the system is faulty. It's that we are faulty. We are at fault. And I think a lot of other independents don't get this. 
I'm an independent. I'm a good I'm a good person. Do you think you're a good person? As Ray Comfort would say, with way of the master ministries. Do you think you're a good person? We think that the problem is the system first and foremost. And we don't realize that the fault lies not with our stars. The fault lies with us. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. As Cassius tells Brutus in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. We become slaves to sin and to death. And in a mad scramble, we never stop to question why we need to humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face. And we need to turn from our wicked ways, our wicked ways. Has it occurred to us that what we're facing right now is judgment from the almighty God? Has that occurred to us? You know, it used to be in the history of this country, in the history of the United States of America, that there were days of prayer and fasting declared by presidents. When was the last time that was put forward? Throw out UBI, throw out Build Back Better. It's all hubris. It's all, we are going to save ourselves. We are going to do this thing. Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, live there for a year, and make a profit. We boast in our arrogance. When what we really need to do is we need to humble ourselves. We need to pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways. God promises if his people who are called by his name. So step one, we should be considering, are we his people? Are we called by his name? Second, are we humbling ourselves before the Lord? Are we praying and seeking his face? Are we turning from our wicked ways? And do we even know what wickedness is? Or have we forgotten how to blush? And Jen Psaki, CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, Andrew Yang, Forward Party, Republican Party, Democrat Party, numbers and stats. Sometimes I just feel like it's all a lot of smoke and mirrors. It's all a lot of fluff and nonsense. When what we really need is to turn from our wicked ways. Come to Jesus. That would put people back to work. That would open up the economy. That would put families back together. Andrew Yang points out, rightly so, that political differences have become the most acceptable form of discrimination. How did you vote? What positions do you take? Ah, okay, now I know what to do with you. Now I know how to treat you. Now I know how to talk to you. Now I know how to dispose of you or whether we can be friends or whether we can be family, whether we can get together for Thanksgiving, whether we can break bread together, whether I can treat you with respect, whether I can treat you decently, whether I can be honest in my dealings with you. Wickedness. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if a man strikes you in the one cheek, turn to him the other also. You've heard that it was said, hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. If your enemy is hungry, God's word tells us to give him something to eat. If your enemy's thirsty, give him something to drink. Repay no one evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It takes a lot of humility. Humility that I very often do not have. Certainly not easily. But it's wicked for us to presume that first and foremost, when other people are acting the fool, they're sinning against us. Actually, first and foremost, they're sinning against the Most High if they're in fact sinning. First and foremost, they're sinning against God because all things belong to him. And what are we doing? Are we humbling ourselves 
Are we praying and seeking his face? Are we turning from our wicked ways? I'm going to leave it there, though. That's enough for this episode. It's a Saturday morning. I had a full week at work. I'll just throw this out there in closing. I just started a new job, this great resignation business. So many millions of people in America quitting their jobs, getting new jobs. I am in that number. Heather Long tweeted out November 12th, a record 4.4 million Americans quit their jobs in September 2021. So far this year, 34.5 million Americans have quit, and that was as of November 12th. Millions more than anything ever seen before. Next closest was 2019 when 31.7 million quit from January to September. This is the great resignation. I'm in that camp. I left my job with Sterling Energy back in November. Just started a new job with Eagle Automation. Today is my first day off after Monday through Friday working 47 and a half hours. That's more hours than I've worked in a week for a couple of months. And I thought about going into work today, picking up an extra shift. I could have, probably still could, but I also could rest. And I also could say, you know what? Play the long game, Garrett. Ease into this. Get some rest. Past two days were pretty physically demanding. I was thrown out there as an extra set of hands on some projects on the Chevron account. Very happy to. I really enjoyed the work, even though it was more physically intensive than I have done for a while. But I also should rest if I'm given the opportunity to today. Switch gears, spend some time with my kids, spend some time with my wife, spend some time at home. And uh, that's biblical. God created everything in six days, rested on the seventh. Today's the seventh day of the week. I'm going to take some rest seek the Lord's face, seek the Lord's favor. I would encourage you to as well. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.